Israel itself is not a liberator. It creates means, not goals. The tools for solving the problems are knowledge and understanding, know the facts, but see how they fit in the big picture. Hello and welcome everyone to our new podcast, Labor ins Ohr. My name is Bernd and together with Christoph we are going to take a look over the shoulders of the giants in science to see what happens behind the curtains. Yes, hello and welcome also from my side. I'm Christoph and I just want to explain you what the idea behind this podcast is. Bernd and I are both scientists Nevertheless, we are not going to talk about research topics such as maybe the life of tropical frogs or photosynthesis. Neither we are going to explain you how to make an atomic bomb. No, what we are showing you in this podcast are exciting background stories and current discussions from the scientific world. We want to give you more insight into these events, provide you with background knowledge and collect expert voices and professional opinions on disputes. So to say, all the events which have a strong influence on science, but many people don't talk about or know them so well. Our first season is a perfect example for such a topic. It will be all about scientific publishing. In different episodes, we want to explain you how the scientific publishing works, we will discuss the open access initiative and we'll try to introduce you to the website SciHub and talk about its present and future. The episode you're listening right now, however, will focus on the history of scientific publishing. Let's pretend you're a scientist and after years of research you found something interesting that you want to share with the world. So, what would you do? I send a tweet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, probably nowadays you would first tweet about it. But afterwards you could also try to publish it in a scientific journal. In a first step you would therefore summarize your work and send it to a journal where similar research has been published before. And that could therefore reach other researchers in that area. In the next step, you send your work to this journal where editors scan your article to see if it passes the minimum requirements and could be interesting to publish. In the following step, the famous peer review process, your article is sent to other scientists that work on similar problems. They check if your data is plausible, given other research in that area, if your data does really prove the point you try to make, and they can also see if you made technical errors. Because they know where the problems are typically made, and they can also help to solve your problems. The improved work 
is sent back afterwards to the publisher where they adapt the typesetting and style to other papers in this journal to make it more readable for the target audience. And after this final step, your article gets published and can be read by researchers around the world. The way you explained it to us, one might get the impression that there is a great collaboration going on between the publishers and the scientists. This is not quite the case, however, when you take a closer look at the business aspect of this kind of relation. Because instead of philanthropical non-profit organizations, most of these publishers are business-oriented companies. And each year they actually make huge profits. Of course, it's totally clear to us that a company wants to cover their expenses. But maybe you can briefly explain to us why this business model creates a massive problem for the scientific community. Okay, so the scientist, the laboratory and everything else that is needed for research is mostly paid for by the government. Professors and group leaders try to collect external funding through corporations with industrial partners or by applying for grants provided by charity organizations. But most of the work is basically paid by taxpayers. After doing research and discovering something interesting, the scientists submit their findings for free to the publisher. And the peer review is also done for free by other scientists. After it has been published, everyone that wants to gain access to these findings have to pay the publisher and not the scientists, either through subscriptions or directly for each article. Well, the publishers do have costs. They have to provide the infrastructure, they are responsible for the typesetting and editing, and they have to administer the peer review process. But well, most of the scientific work is paid for by taxpayer money. Well, I would say those big science institutes, they usually have a lot of money to spend on. So maybe it does not harm them that much. But there's another player which really feels the burden of this high subscription costs. This even led to a crisis in the 1990s, of which we're going to talk about in more detail later in this episode. But the player I mean are the libraries. So, for example, university libraries. They need to provide their faculties with access to all the major journals. And especially in the recent years, this has become a huge problem because of the high price in subscription. Let me give you some numbers as an example. According to a study of Project Deal in 2015, the total cost for subscriptions German universities paid were 106.5 million euros. This is a big pile of money. But this study showed even another problematic aspect, which can be described with the word oligopoly. 
It means that you have a few big publishers which dominate the market. In this case, 58% of all the subscription costs were paid to only three different publishers. Another issue of the high subscription costs doesn't concern us so much, since we are in the privileged position that our governmental-funded libraries provide the access to the major journals for us for free. However, if you look at other countries, this very often is not the case. The students there struggle to get access to these papers and of course it's a huge problem because where should they get the knowledge these journals contain? Lastly, each private person actually has to pay for the article, even though they have already paid for it with their taxes. So you can see there are various parties which get harmed by the subscription costs. Well, one might say now, this is just the way it is. A science is an expensive matter and the publishing is just one of the expenses you have, like paying for equipment. The production costs of scientific journals, especially online journals, are way lower than the revenues which the publishers achieve. This results in huge profits, up to almost 40% these companies make, which is one of the main reasons why their journals are so expensive. I can illustrate this better with a few numbers by citing the example of the publisher Elsevier. In 2013, it reported a revenue of more than 2.1 billion pounds for its science, tech and medicine branch. This creates a profit margin of 39%. It gets even more incredible when we compare it to other companies. Everybody of you knows the tech giant Apple. The same year, they could make a profit margin of 21%. However, maybe this comparison is not the best because we're looking at the publisher on the one hand side and on a tech company on the other side. So let's compare it, for example, to another publisher like the New York Times. In 2013, they made a profit of 10%. Just imagine, the scientific publisher made almost four times more profit than the New York Times. Another problem I mentioned already is the formation of oligopolies. According to a study in 2015 by PLOS One, 53% of all published papers were published by one of five big publishers, which are Reed Elsevier, Springer Nature, Wiley-Blackwell, Taylor & Francis, and Sage Publishing. This leads to a huge dependency by the scientific community on these publishers. As a consequence, they could determine annually increasing subscription rates. For example, Elsevier's journals experienced a 30% increase in just five years. So, these are all big problems and I guess most of our listeners are quite smart and have come up with a lot of questions at this point of time. Like, for example, why do the scientists still continue to publish in these journals 
And why do they do the peer review for free? Also, who actually started paying for something which somebody else provides for free? How could those prices rise so high? And finally, what can we do to end this dependency? Well, this episode will focus on the historical background of scientific publishing, which can help to understand current developments, problems and possible solutions. In the next episode, we will have an interview with Björn Brems, who is a well-known figure in the open access community and professor for neurogenetics at the University of Regensburg in Germany, with some provocative statements on current developments. In the third episode, we're going to talk to Alexandra Elbakian, the founder of the shadow library SciHub. With this project, she endangers publishers by enabling people around the world to bypass their paywalls. But at the same time, her website allows them to access knowledge for free. In the last episode, we will try to reach out to publishers to get to know their side of the story. But before we come to those interviews, I'd like to take you back to ancient times, before the scientific publishing system existed. And therefore, let's go back to the early 17th century, where natural philosophers, as they were called in those days, mostly used books and letters to publish their findings. But as you can imagine, those ways were very slow and could not reach everybody that was probably doing research in a similar area. Therefore, there were some conflicts between scientists from those days about who was the first in making a discovery. One famous argument revolved around the moons of Jupiter, around the year 1610. Do you remember which moons were discovered back then, Christoph? Pooh, that was a very long time ago. Um, let me think. There is Europe and Io, and I think Ganymede is one of them. And then I might need to ask my astronomer friends. <laughs> uh, so the last one is called Callisto. Nowadays they are called the Galilean moons, but he actually never used the names you mentioned before. In fact, he wanted to name them after his donors, the Medici family. Europe, Io, Ganymede and Callisto are named after lovers of Zeus and have been given to them by Simon Marius, an astronomer from Germany. He claimed publicly that he, instead of Galileo, was the first to discover the moons. This led to a dispute between both astronomers and Galileo accused him of plagiarism and once referred to him as poisonous reptile and enemy of the whole mankind. This fight was only settled 300 years later when a jury from the Netherlands analyzed the work from both and concluded 
that they discovered the moons independently from another. But also that Simon Marius started keeping notes a day after Galileo's first recorded observations. The problem for both was that in those days their announcement could not reach everybody fast enough to prove who was the first discoverer of the moons. Nowadays, where new discoveries are published daily, it would be impossible to imagine science without the fast and far-reaching publication system. One of the first journals that tried to distribute scientific knowledge was called Philosophical Transactions and was founded in the year 1665 by a secretary of the Royal Society, which is one of the most famous scientific societies until today. In those days publishing could barely pay for the expenses and could often mean a loss to the publisher. Just imagine a world without industrialized printing and without the means we have nowadays to distribute our paper and our knowledge. But it was no problem for the Royal Society, because most scientists were part of the upper class and they had the money to cover for their losses. Let's skip a few years after that and go directly to the 19th century, where science truly became a profession. Important ideas that came up during that period included the theory of evolution, the periodic table of chemical elements, and also thermodynamics. All in all, you could say that the scientific output increased sharply, and therefore many new societies, from Argentina, like the National Academy of Medicine, to Japan, where the Chemical Society of Japan were founded during those days. Also many sub-disciplines started to have their own societies, like the Royal Microscopical Society, the Astronomical Society, and yeah, therefore science really started to expand in their fields and also throughout the whole world. At the same time, the cost of printing and distributing decreased because of automatization of printing processes and inventions like trains with steam engines that were developed during the Industrial Revolution. And nevertheless, many publishers struggled during those days. The main factor was that most publications were sent free of charge to libraries, not only across England, but also around the world to other societies. Therefore, you could say that it was published in an early form of open access, which led to one of the most impressive collections of scientific literature. But at the same time, there were rising costs connected to it. But I think, Christoph, we haven't actually explained what open access means. Can you give a short introduction to the listeners? Yeah, for sure. Well, the name already tells you the most important thing. The idea of open access is to make scientific literature freely accessible, but also reusable for everyone. And from a financial perspective, this means that the reader 
doesn't have to pay for the article, but instead the costs for editing and other work involving the publication are taken by someone else who could either be the author himself or an institution, for example, the scientific societies. I actually want to finish the stories from the 19th century with someone that actually managed to make a profit from his work of scientific publishing and how he did it, basically. I'm talking about Richard Taylor, who was the founder of a company nowadays known as Taylor and Francis. And this company is still one of the biggest publishers there is. It had its roots in the 19th century when Richard Taylor started as an apprentice in a printing company. Therefore he had a printing background instead of a scholarly background like most other publishers in those days. He managed to take over the business from his former master when he retired and therefore he already had the foundation for their success, which was really good connections to the scholarly community. And also he inherited an already well-known scientific journal, the Philosophical Magazine. The connections from the company were broadened when his son Francis Taylor joined him. He had studied chemistry in Germany and therefore knew many scientists from the continental part of Europe. Another key to their success was that they managed to publish full-length journals consistently every month. As a private publisher with good connections to multiple societies, they were able to mix many topics from physics to chemistry. And additionally, he could also publish trivial research and theoretical speculations that societies did not want to publish. And through his connections to Europe, he could also translate news from scientists in the continental part. And therefore they always had articles to publish and to fill their journals with interesting facts and knowledge. With the profits they made from publishing, they were able to buy out other journals that had problems and also journals from scholarly publishers that started to gain interest in other things or started to focus more on their research again. And with these tricks they managed to grow consistently and really establish themselves as the publisher for the scientific community during the 19th century. And after this success story, let's see how the true commercialization of science started after World War II. And Christoph, I think you can tell us more about it. Yes, indeed. And actually, I just want to continue with a somehow similar story, which takes place almost 100 years after the story of Richard and Francis Taylor. The person it focuses on is called Robert Maxwell. Most of you might not know him, but his daughter, Ghislaine Maxwell, but we're not going to talk about her. Robert Maxwell was in fact a very famous and very influential person between the 50s and 70s. 
he was a British media tycoon, but he started his media empire actually with scientific publishing. Our story starts after the Second World War. In this time, again, science experienced a huge growth. This was enabled firstly by the increased governmental funding, but an additional factor was also the expanding university system. So suddenly science was booming and with it the scientific societies. But despite this, they still had problems with their publication. To solve this, one of the scholarly publishers teamed up with a professional publisher and founded a new scientific publisher called Pergamon Press. And Robert Maxwell first started as a manager of Pergamon Press, but later he took over the company completely. You might wonder what was so special about Pergamon Press or how did they manage to commercialize the whole scientific publishing business? It's not easy to answer this in one word. There were many inventions Pergamon Press came up with, which then contributed to the big financial success. For example, they made editors sign exclusive deals to work only with them. Also, they aggressively competed with other journals for authors, and they just accepted a lot of papers and published them, regardless of the content. According to the motto, the more the better. Because from an economical point of view, raising the quantity of your publications will also raise your profit. And another measure to achieve this was to just increase the frequency of those journals. So going from biannually releases to maybe monthly editions. Another way of increasing the quantity was creating new journals out of nothing. This was in fact quite successful since the universities subscribed to these new journals in addition. During that time, we're talking between uh, 1959 and 1965, Pergamon Press went from 40 to 150 journals. And if you look at their competitors, for example Elsevier, they still had only 50 journals in 1969. This just shows you how ahead of their time Pergamon Press was. But wait, how can they just increase the number of their journals from 40 to 150 and still find customers for all of them? Doesn't it just create more competition after some additional journals? That's a very good question. And the answer is no. Actually, they didn't create new rivals with this. Because, and this is also the nature of scientific publishing, those journals are not competing against, but instead they are complementing each other because it's about the scientific content. The idea of a paper is that new findings are presented to the public, which makes each paper unique. And this is also why not one paper can substitute another. 
And of course, as a library, you want to offer a comprehensive content. You want to cover all the different scientific areas with the most important journals. This is one of the biggest reasons which led to the commercialization of scientific publishing. But there are more additional factors. One of them we can call competition. I said Pergamon was ahead of their rivals, such as Elsevier. But this whole aspect is more complex. If you remember, you, Bernd, told us that in the beginning, scientific publishing was in the hands of the societies. But what happened was that in the second half of the 20th century, the professional publishers just took over from the scientific societies. And now you might say, oh, but why did the societies not counteract this trend? They had no intention of stopping this. No, they were happy for the professionals to step in. The professional publishers bought the copyrights for relatively small amounts of money regarding the profits the publishers made. Nevertheless, this still meant a lot for the not-so-well-funded scientific societies. But besides the financial aspects, the societies further profited from the expertise the professionals brought, which, for example, increased the pace of publishing. And by that time, still the societies were lagging behind with their publications. Another advantage for example, Pergamon Press offered to the Japanese scientific society was to translate all their content to English in exchange for their copyrights for free. Lastly, during that time, the universities had bigger budgets and hence could just afford to spend that much money on subscriptions. In a nutshell, by various strategies, professional publishers took over the scientific publishing from the societies and turned it into a profitable business. The dependency which developed through this would have probably been problematic enough for the scientific community. But another problem added to this in the 1970s, which influenced scientific publishing until today. The story I want to tell you now starts in 1974, when a new journal was founded which changed the whole way of scientific publishing. It is one of the most famous journals still today, at least for the biomedical community. And the journal I'm talking about is called Cell. It was invented by Benjamin Levin with a visionary intention. In contrary to the other journals by that time, who were only tools to publish the scientific content, he instead wanted to create a comprehensive biology journal, a journal which now turned into the main actor and the research was done to provide content for it. Cell would feature lengthy articles which needed years of research, and instead of the quick findings which were published in different journals until then. 
other innovations he came up with was, for example, a shiny new appearance. He used costly paper and nice images to make those articles which were published in Cell look like the blockbusters of science, meaning breathtaking scientific stories which were exciting enough to catch the attention of the public at the moment of publication. And even another factor which we can still see today when we look at Cell but already existed in the 70s contributed to its fame and this was their high rejection rate. By that time less than every third article which was submitted to them got published. This was unprecedented by that time. And it created some kind of exclusiveness. I mean, you can imagine it's like trying to get into a famous club, like, for example, the Berghain in Berlin. The more people they reject, the more attractive it is. This also means that once you had a cell article, you were seen in a completely different light and it opened you unprecedented career or funding opportunities. And this is how Cell changed the publishing world. Because now, suddenly, it was not only important to publish, but it was also important where you published. So let me sum up what we have learned so far. With the foundation of Cell, it suddenly became important not to publish anywhere, but preferably in prestigious journals. This adds to the general pressure for scientists to publish, another precarious aspect we could not even talk about. Anyway, the scientists are grateful if their papers get accepted and handed over to the publishers completely for free. However, the scientists have no chance but to subscribe to the journals to stay well informed because there are no alternatives and each paper is unique. Due to this dependency, the publishers have the power to annually raise the costs for subscription, which makes the whole situation worse. This pretty much sounds like a vicious circle with ever-increasing prices and dependencies. This can't last forever, am I right? You're absolutely right. And especially in recent years, we have seen where this problem leads us to. And this brings us to the last topic I'm going to talk about today. The serials crisis. This is a term used for a phenomenon which was created by exactly those factors I mentioned before. When it started in the 1990s, it was actually a library problem because while the library budgets were stagnant over the previous years, the prices of the academic journals steadily increased at a very high rate. And this got to a point where the libraries just could not pay for all the subscriptions anymore. And the result was obvious. The libraries cancelled subscriptions to smaller journals, which they thought are not so important. However, this had other negative consequences. 
besides the lack of those journals, obviously. Because now the publishers of those cancelled journals had less income due to less subscriptions. And what did they do? Of course, they again raised their prices of their journals. Another factor which influenced the serials crisis was the digitalization. Initially, people thought that with the digital area, the price of scientific publishing would decrease. But the opposite was the case. Due to digitalization, publishers had even higher control over the accessibility, for example by establishing paywalls. And another issue was that once a library cancelled subscription to a certain journal, it would also lose access to all the papers of the past years where it had already paid for. And there were even more factors which influenced the serials crisis. We already mentioned it. The inelastic demand market, which is not sensitive to the price increase. This means in practice that the publishers could put on any price on their product, but the demand would still be huge for it. This was also due to this kind of niche monopoly they had with their products. Because, like we said, you need to buy almost each journal. A further influence on that crisis was an idea the publishers came up with. So-called big deals. These were subscriptions to bundles of journals, which comprised several single items including journals, the individual library would actually not purchase. But some journals were simply not available otherwise. And most of the time, those big deals could run over a very, very long period. Taking together all those factors we talked about in this episode led to and tightened the serials crisis which then brought the libraries to a severe problem. But, as it is the case with each challenge, also big chances arise from it. And one of the consequences of the serials crisis was that an initiative was born, which aimed to counteract this effect. The initiative I'm talking about is the open access movement. And you will hear more about this in our next episode. So, to summarize the findings from this episode, we saw that there is a need for a scientific publication system that can ensure high quality and the fast distribution of knowledge. The question that remains open is how to finance it. On the one hand, we saw that the free and open publications from the scientific societies in the early days of scientific publishing were not sustainable, at least not with the means they had in those days. On the other hand, it became obvious that the development after World War II led to ever-increasing prices and subscription costs, basically until today. And this ultimately resulted in the serious crisis, but also in a call for a modern version of open science publications. 
we will search for answers to these problems in the next episodes, where we will talk with experts that have been part of the open access movement for years. And we will also try to get an interview with a scientific publisher to see how they view the current system and what ideas they have for the future of publishing. And now that we're at the end of our first episode, of course, we have to thank a lot of important people. Without their help, this podcast would have not been possible. So first, there is Carlo Pavlovich, who provided us with very useful information about the library business and about the history of scientific publishing. Also, I want to thank Jana Wiese for useful tips about podcasting and providing hardware for us. Oh, and at last, I want to thank Marco, who helped us creating the music you heard, and Toby, who created the logo. And at last, I would like to thank you, the listener, that you stayed with us until the end. I hope you learned something along the way and will join us in the next episode. If you liked it, you can subscribe, like, share and recommend our episode to others that might be interested in this topic. Yeah, we're very happy if you drop us a few lines with some feedback to this episode. There is our wonderful website laborinsor.de. For those of you who listen to this podcast on a different platform, it might still be worth to check it out. You can find, for example, links for further reading and other nice information. Or you write us an email. What we are also very happy about are donations. This helps us to keep this podcast running and you can easily donate to our PayPal account contact at laborinsor.de which you can also find on our website. You can also follow us on Twitter where we are at laborinsor. This might sound hard to write but as you already know our podcast you see who published it and you can copy the name. It's not that hard. You can do it. Goodbye.